following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Bless us, Lord, through your word. Forgive us, Father, for any distraction, Lord. Forgive us for um, any time where, where our hearts, Lord, may not be soft and and moldable as we just sang about, God. May you make that song uh, truly the prayer of our hearts, that we would be uh, willing and desiring to be used by you and shaped into whatever vessel you would desire to use to glorify Jesus. That's what we want. I pray that his name would be honored in the time that we spend together in Hosea. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to start this morning by asking you if, um, I was wondering, do you guys, any of you have those recurring dreams? Yeah, you know, where it's like, it's like maybe kind of different situation, different circumstances, but it, there's a dream that kind of centers around the same idea, and they happen from time to time. You know, one of the recurring dreams that I have is about losing my teeth. Okay, we're just being open and honest here and being up front. In fact, you know, right after first hour, someone came up to me and said, I have the same thing. So I know it's, uh, it's an epidemic. You know, I, I have this struggle. Sometimes in my dream, I'm at the dentist and he just starts yanking them out. Uh, other times I'll be just eating something randomly in my dream and all of a sudden my teeth are coming out. Or there are times where they just fall out as I'm in the middle of dreaming. So, you know, I guess I have a phobia, don't I, about, about that? Maybe it's because uh, when I was five years old, I was being chased in the schoolyard and was running from this guy, and I was turning around looking at him, and then when I went, f- turned forward, I bang, right into a metal slide. Uh, my two front teeth were the recipients of that impact and uh, fell to the ground. So maybe, uh, maybe that's why I have these recurring dreams. There's that childhood trauma in my past. Or, you know, Pastor Ed, I, I need to maybe spend, make an appointment with you uh, to talk about this. <laughs> he said, please. <laughs> There's also another recurring dream. So Ed, take some notes right now. There's another recurring dream that I have uh, now and again, and it is about missing an exam, but not just any exam, a final exam. I, I'll be having this dream about something, and all of a sudden it'll hit me as I'm dreaming. I missed a test. I missed a final. Or uh, I haven't studied, and I got this one coming up. Uh, and... Uh, I'm not sure again why this comes up a lot. Maybe it's a fear of failure that I have. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not wanting to disappoint others, or maybe I just have this compulsive desire to achieve. But, you know, as I think about it, Ed, can can you slot me in this week? Um, Actually, there was one time in college, real life now. Woke up, looked at my alarm clock, it didn't go off, and guess what? I had a final that morning that was starting in five minutes. Um, well, I, unfortunately, the problem was I didn't live on campus. I had to take a bus in. And so, uh, you know, it was pretty nerve-wracking. Fortunately, I found a friend. I was only about 30 minutes late. But uh, perhaps that is what the secret is here and why I'm having this dream all the time. But, you know, I bring up this case of finals, a final exam, because it's the last test of the class, right? It's a big deal if you miss it because there's no second chances, it's not like you can do a makeup. Look, this is it, the final day of classes. And then during that final exam, there's no more, no opportunity to do it later. Final means final. 
And as we come to the last two chapters in Hosea, that is where we find the northern tribes of Israel. They are in their final days. The Assyrian invasion is going to be happening very soon. The country will be wiped out. Many will be taken away into captivity. Hosea is nearing the end of a ministry, his ministry that spanned several decades as he continued to come to the people, call them to repentance and warn them of the judgment to come and and describe to them that God would forgive if they would but turn. But they continued to refuse. And we've come to that time in their history as we approach these last two chapters in Hosea where the king, King Hosea, He had been uh, trying to make a deal with the Egyptians and get their agreement to make an alliance with them to go against Assyria because he didn't want to pay tribute to the Assyrians anymore. Trouble is that the king, King Shalmaneser, he found out about this little scheme that was going on. And so he took Hosea and threw him into prison. And then not long after that, the Assyrians invaded the land and it was all over. But just before the end... Just before the end, Hosea has a final message. He has a last call to the people to consider their ways. One last appeal, one last warning, one last opportunity to repent. And that's where we find ourselves in this message that he's going to give in Hosea 13. So please turn there if you're not there already. I've outlined the message this morning with four points. They all have to do with final. There's a final warning in chapter 13. There's a final exhortation. In the first three verses of chapter 14, Hosea gives a final encouragement in verses 4 to 7, and then a final word by both God and Hosea in the last two verses of chapter 14. Let's first look at his final warning, beginning in Hosea 13, verse 1. This here, he says, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say to them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Let's stop right there. Here, Hosea speaks of Ephraim. He's addressing Ephraim, the tribe, directly now. And he's speaking to them, and he refers to them as how how they were once prominent, how they were once one of the chief tribes of the northern ten tribes of Israel. In fact, it was right after the split with Judah that took place about 200 years earlier, the first king of the ten northern tribes of Israel was King Jeroboam. He came from the tribe of Ephraim. And it was in the land of Ephraim, in that region where the capital of Israel was placed, in Samaria, where the kings and kings, kings and queens dwelled. And then the religious center, too, was established in the region of Ephraim, in Bethel. And we've talked about that a number of times. And so Ephraim was the prominent tribe. They were the most prosperous, among the most populous. They had the political and religious influence in the land. But as Hosea notes here, Ephraim also introduced idol worship. He uses that term of, of kissing the calves. That was a, an expression of showing honor to a god. And so here we see this, this tribe that was once great in the land. Uh, Hosea describes here now as a shamefully a humiliating expression as they bow down and they kiss these statues of gold, uh, of wood, of stone, statues that are empty, statues that have no power. That have no life. 
And so as he presents this picture of them uh, kissing these inanimate objects, of giving them worship, he also talks about the fact that that they also were uh, going to come to nothing. They were worshiping these objects that were nothing, and they will come to nothing. It's interesting, there's one word of many that are used for uh, the word idol in the Old Testament. It's the word havel, which means nothingness, vanity, emptiness. And so Hosea here in verse 3 says, you are worshiping nothing, you will become nothing. And he he uses these four uh, descriptions, these four metaphors that he describes about Israel. He says they are like morning clouds and like dew and like chaff and also like smoke. Now, what do those four things have in common? What are they similar? What's similar about them? Yeah, they're very short term, right? They're temporary. They're transitory. In fact, they go into nothingness. And again, Hosea is using these as an image that that is what is going to happen to the people of Ephraim. They would go into nothing. He describes their destruction here. And that description becomes more graphic and more vivid as we move into the next section in verse 4. If you look there with me, he says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. Got a little more strong in his pictures, didn't he? This is very vivid language. It's very violent imagery that God is expressing here in their judgment. As he's describing it to them. But notice before he describes this judgment in verses 7 through 8, if you look back at verse 4, he reminds them of something. He begins by telling them about the fact that I'm the one, I'm the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. And then he mentions verse right after that, you were not to know any God except me. Now, what do those two phrases together remind you of? God declaring that he's their God and delivered them from Egypt and that they were have to have no other God besides him. Does that bring to mind any time in the past? Yeah. In Exodus 20, when God spoke the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, that's how he began. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Right here, he's reminding them of that, that covenant that was made, a covenant that over and over Hosea pointed out in his ministry that they had broken. And here, once again, they went somewhere else besides God. There's no savior except for him, as he says. And God takes them back to this covenant in verses five and six after Sinai. He talks about how he cared for them through the desert and provided for them food and and water and sustenance and protection. But they refused him, right? Because what happened when God brought them into the promised land and they experienced all the wealth and prosperity? They forgot God, right? They no longer turned to him. They put their affection and their attention and their dependence on the gifts rather than the giver. And so here then Hosea tells us that they forgot God. They forgot him by showing him no honor or gratitude, by not trusting or depending on him. They They forgot him by rebelling against his commands, by not listening to his prophets. And so God again describes here there will be consequences, severe consequences. 
And rather than simply say that they would just be judged, notice here he gives this very, again, graphic imagery of what that judgment will be like. He describes himself as as being as a lion or a leopard, a lurking leopard or a, a bear that has been robbed of her cubs, an enraged bear or a savage lion-like beast. And these beasts, he describes, would tear open their prey, right? It's, it's very bloody. But these violent images that God expresses here, they weren't simply meant to be threats or, or to frighten them alone. These kinds of things were really going to happen to them. He describes in the last verse in chapter 13, or chapter 13, he describes how the Assyrians would come into the land and they would show no mercy. They would wipe out and destroy and murder children and pregnant women. And so God is warning them here. There's a horrific consequence that is coming on the land. God wanted to get their attention. And so these verses show that the one who had been their deliverer and their defender would not be there to protect them. In fact, if you compare verses 4 and 5 to 7 and 8, the image of the shepherd turns into the image of the predator. The one who was shepherding the flock would be the one who would prey on the flock. That's his point in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. He says there, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities, and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Verse 9 describes here how Israel is now toast because they rebelled against the only one who protect them. They rebelled against the only one who could truly give them help. So God says with a hint of sarcasm, you've rejected me. Now, where is your king that he may save you? Because again, that was a mentality that people had. In fact, that is why they demanded from Samuel to give them a king, because they said, we want a king like the other nations, one who will protect us and care for us. In fact, that's the the reference there at the end of verse 10, that phrase, that request, give me a king. He's referring back to that event. God gave them a king. He gave them King Saul. But now God says, where is your king? I don't think he's meaning this figuratively. I think this is a literal question. I think this is showing us the specific time in Israel's history, the time when, as I mentioned earlier, King Hosea was taken into captivity and bound in prison by the king of Assyria. There was no king on the throne at this time in Israel. And that was a a picture, an image. God saying, you have no king on the throne to protect you. You've rejected the only one who could protect you. Where Where do you stand now? Where is your king that he may save you? I think that also shows he's referring specifically to Hosea because that word save in Hebrew, Yesha, is the root word for Hosea's name. The, the one, Yahweh, the man named Yahweh saves, where is he now to help you, to save you, to deliver you? He's bound up in jail. And then in verses 12 to 16, Hosea emphasizes that this is their final warning. Death and destruction would come very soon. Look at verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. 
Though he flourishes, referring to Ephraim, though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Pretty sobering, isn't it? You see why God so intense in His imagery and the pictures that He was painting of the coming destruction? Because when the Assyrians come through the land, there will be no mercy, no kindness, no compassion. And so here He is warning them. And again, in these verses 12 to 16, He warns them yet again of the death and destruction that is coming. In fact, death is a part of almost every verse in that section. He uses another graphic and troubling image in verse 13 as he's describing the pains of birth that have come upon a pregnant woman, but the child will not come out. A situation that will almost certainly mean death for both the child and its mother. Here, Hosea takes this image a little bit further and exaggerating as if this child is refusing to come out. Now, we know in real life, babies can't do that but here uh, the the absurdity of it is he's focusing attention on the fact that israel you're you're like a baby choosing not to be born you're bringing consequences and death upon yourself by your sin verse 15 hosea describes the east wind coming again the assyrians were from the east they would come through the land and devastate it And he has another play on words here that's rather interesting. Notice he says there, though he flourishes. That word uh, flourishes from the word para, which has this idea of being fruitful. And that word actually is also at the root of the name Ephraim. So remember back in Genesis 21 when Ephraim was born and Joseph said there in Genesis 41 verse 52, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, I'll name him Ephraim. And so again, God is playing on that, uh, those words and showing that this in the land whose name means fruitfulness or flourishing, it will be barren, it will be dry, there will be no vegetation, no fruit. And then Hosea's final warning ends in verse 16, telling of the horrendous massacre that will be coming. And so in this chapter, we see the, the terrible wrath of God against sin, don't we? Again, it's a sobering account. And we see also from this that, that we're reminded of God's perfect holiness and just how wicked and evil sin must be for it to bring such consequences. But also in this chapter, I'm reminded of God's patience. Because, let me ask you, was this Hosea's first and only message that he spoke to the people of Israel? It wasn't, right? Right? How long did he minister? I gave, I gave the answer away earlier. Well, a day? A, a year? A couple years? Decades. He began his ministry, or God commissioned him back in the days of King Jeroboam II, all the way through to the last king of the tribes, northern tribes of Israel, Hosea, a period of <clears throat> excuse me, over 30 years. Over 30 years! He was preaching and proclaiming and saying a message of their need to turn from their sin and put their trust in God. Thirty plus years he was speaking. And was Hosea the only prophet that God sent to warn them? Was he? 
No, right? There were many prophets. In fact, going all the way back to the first king, Jeroboam, 200 years earlier, God sent prophet after prophet. And here in His mercy, right up to the very end, Hosea, almost as the sound of the troops are approaching, he is out crying out to the people, warning them one more time, one last chance, one more opportunity to turn from their sin. And that shows me the patience of God in sending Hosea. Hosea, tell them one more time. And he is still patient. He is still warning because there is a coming judgment upon this world, right? There's a coming judgment upon this land against its sin. But as many of you know, Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise. That is His promise to come in judgment. As some count slowness, but is what? Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And we see in the book of Revelation when His judgment is being poured out, a fierce judgment, terrible plagues coming upon the earth. And we see even then, up to the very end, God continues to proclaim a message and to warn. And in fact, in Revelation 14, right before the seven bowls of God's wrath, the last judgments that come upon the earth, right up to that point, He sends an angel to warn, to say, turn, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Right up to the very end, God warns because He is merciful, because He is patient. Even when judgment is moments away, God is still, excuse me, still giving opportunity to repent. And He'll even send an angel to do it. And so Hosea, in Israel's last days, he is calling the people to repent before it is too late. Look now at his final exhortation in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, where he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Let's stop there a minute before we look on at the next verses. From, From our study of the prophets and even in Hosea himself, does this phrase, return to the Lord, sound familiar? Does it recognize it? It's been repeated often. And what does it mean? What does it mean? This idea of repentance, right? The, the word literally means to physically turn. And a spiritual turning is this turning from sin and placing your trust in God and God alone. And here again, Hosea is saying, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn from their rebellion. That's the whole intent of his warning in chapter 13, is that they would respond to this final exhortation. Here again, we see the mercy of God in action, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Beloved, we can learn something from Hosea here. After these 30 plus years of preaching and preaching and calling people to repentance and seeing very little, if any, change or response, he is still crying out once again, one more time, before the very end, return, repent, turn while you still can. Place your trust in God. While there's still time. And beloved, we need to be as patient and persistent as our brother Hosea here. Don't give up on people. Keep praying for them. Keep calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. Keep bringing the gospel. Don't stop. Don't give up. Well, they're not going to change. Hosea, 30 years or more. 
God himself continues and continues and continues to go after people and call them to repentance. And we are those vessels. Because let me ask you, how many times did it take you to respond? Brother Lonnie, did you get it on the first shot? No, sir. I know that because I know you. (laughs) Right? I was the same way. How many times uh, did you continue to ignore or refuse to listen? And if God had this man preach to the very end, we need to do the same. All the way to the deathbed. I remember sharing the gospel with my grandmother who was very against it so many years. And in the last days when she was dying, talking to her, she couldn't speak. She couldn't say anything. And all the times I tried before, she didn't want to listen. But to the very end, call her to repentance. And I don't know. I asked her, Grandma, do you understand what it means that you've sinned against God and that you need to be forgiven? And she couldn't say anything. She nodded. I said, Grandma, do you want to be forgiven? She nodded again. So I, I don't know. I hope, I hope that in that last call, she came to the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the very end, we cannot stop. Even a very small hammer can crack open a dam if you hit it enough times. Hosea further details his exhortation in verse 2, where he says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Here it's almost like an altar call that Hosea is giving. As he calls the people to return to God, to repent, he then uh, gives them this this prayer, really, that they are to speak to God. And these are the things that they are to say to him. Now, he's not doing this, not giving this model prayer because there's something we just have to recite. Some some words like a magical incantation that we need to give in order to be forgiven. Now, these are the words that he's laying out as an expression of of a truly repentant, a genuine heart. One that truly desires to be forgiven. And here we see four key elements of a truly repentant heart. Four characteristics of a person who is turning to God in faith. And these characteristics, they show real repentance. Whether it's 723 B.C. or 2014 A.D. And the first characteristic we see here is to confess. To confess that you're a sinner. Hosea says to pray that God would take away all iniquity. And that comes right after his statement that the reason for that they were stumbling for their consequences was their iniquity and was their sin. That's because our sin's the main problem here. That's the main issue. We can't be right with God. We can't begin to be reconciled with him if we first don't confess we've sinned against him. If we first don't admit and say, yeah, God, I have sinned greatly against you. Not, yeah, God, I know I'm not perfect. Or, yeah, I know I've made some mistakes. Uh, I have some problems. That's not confession of sin. Rather, a true confession calls sin, sin. It sees it for what it is, a terrible offense against the God who made us and cares for us. It's a treasonous act. And it's not just to be grieved about the consequences of our sin, but to be grieved over who we have sinned against. 
You know, someone stole money from you and then they they came later uh, to you and gave your money back. But they didn't say a word. They just handed you the money and walked away. Would everything be fine? Would it? No, right? Why? Why not? You got your money back. Right? But there's still things wouldn't be right between the two of you, right? Because there was no confession. There was no admittance of having harmed you. No expressed sorrow for having sinned against you, right? So there would be no reconciliation. And true repentance towards God can only begin when you understand the gravity of having sinned against God. Just as David talked about in Psalm 51. And we read his story this week, right? In our Bible reading, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and the things that he did. Psalm 51 was his prayer of repentance there. And he said, against you, God, you only have I sinned. Second element of true repentance seen here is similar to the first. It is to recognize... You need to be forgiven of that sin. It's not just a confessing of it. Notice here he says in verse 2, take away all the iniquity. It's a request to God, Lord, forgive me, take away my sin. And the punishment it deserves. Someone who is truly repentant understands that their sin must be removed. It must be forgiven, just as David said in Psalm 51 also. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice in verse 2, the prayer is God. It's directed to God. You take away all of the iniquity. Because we can't take our own iniquities away, right? We can't pay for our own sin. We can't forgive ourselves for sin against God, right? It's just like, let's say that guy who stole your money. He, he comes back to you and he says, well, here's your money back. And, you know, I feel bad about taking it, but I forgave myself. You laugh now, but if it really happened, you'd be kind of upset with that, wouldn't you? He might feel better about it himself, but the fact of the matter is you'd probably be a little upset with it. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm the one you stole from. I'm the one you harmed. We can't be reconciled until you ask me for forgiveness. And so it is with God. We must humbly seek his forgiveness. That forgiveness, though, comes at a cost, doesn't it? God doesn't simply ignore the fact that we sin when He forgives us, and that He wouldn't be just if He just said, Yeah, that's fine, you're forgiven. He wouldn't be just if there was no payment for that sin, if there were no consequences for our sin. That's why we have this week, isn't it? This coming Friday, about 2,000 years ago, this coming Friday. God addressed this issue, right? And he came down, became a man, was nailed to a cross. And there he suffered the punishment on behalf of any who would repent and believe and trust in him for salvation. He made the payment for our sin. Like the wonderful hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow and so because of jesus's sacrifice romans three twenty six says that god is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus the third element of true repentance then is to trust god alone we see that in the last half of verse two and in verse three and now the second half of verse two it's very difficult to translate it literally reads here take the good and let us pay a vow our lips as bulls 
Now, what is that? Um, I think essentially that the idea that he's getting across here in this prayer is essentially accept the sacrifice of these lips. What I'm saying, Lord, accept it as an offering. They express in these verses the sacrifice of his lips, I think, is really what is said then in verse 3 following where it talks about they would no longer look for security in the nations in Assyria and then I think there's a veiled reference to Egypt there as he talks about the horses Egypt was known as a provider of horses Isaiah 31 Isaiah warned them not to trust in Egypt and seek help from them by relying on the horses and so their prayer here in verse 3 is really a commitment not to military might nor to others, but to God himself. And then they add to it, and let us not say, we will not say our God to the work of our hands, their idolatry. And so in this verse, they're making a commitment to turn away from the very two issues that Hosea had been bringing up all through the book. Their reliance and trust in others to help them and their worship of idols and dependence on idols. And they're saying here, they're throwing away their allegiance to these things and saying, God, we will trust in you alone. These will no longer be what we trust in. It's, a, it's a, an abandoning of all allegiances and loyalties and trusting and committing in, to God completely and to God alone. Because following God isn't something you just try out. You know, I think I'll try Jesus and see how it goes. That's not at all. It is a lifelong pledge to turn from everything. Turn from money and and fame. To turn from achievement, self-reliance, false religions. All these things is to turn from them and put your faith totally in Christ. What is it that Jesus himself told the rich young ruler? Do you remember? Sell all you have. Come follow me. He was saying, if there's anything that's going to get in the way... And for him, it was dependence on his money. Saying, give it all up if that's what it takes in order to put your trust in and follow me. It's a lifelong allegiance, commitment. We come to the fourth aspect then of genuine repentance, and that is humility. If you notice at the end of verse 3, there's an interesting expression he gives there, or phrase. He says, for in you, the orphan finds mercy. I think what he's doing here is Hosea is comparing or expressing what a truly repentant person is, is that is that they recognize they are utterly helpless and utterly dependent, personified by an orphan. They're spiritual orphans in a sense. They recognize they're utterly helpless. They're completely at God's mercy. They know exactly what their sin deserves. Reminds me of the the tax collector in Jesus's parable in Luke 18. Remember the one that came to the temple to pray and the whole time he kept his head down. He couldn't even lift it to look at heaven because of his shame over his sin. And he could only say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he walked out of the temple with his head down. You remember what Jesus said in response to that, right? Comparing him with that and the Pharisee. And he said, which one do you think went home justified? The one who recognized he was utterly helpless. And ashamed, stood before God and God said, I will forgive you. That man recognized he was an orphan. He acted as an orphan. Notice too, in the last phrase in verse 3, we, we've come full circle in Hosea for that word mercy, rakam. That word came up back in chapter 1. Remember he had told Hosea what to name his second child, his daughter. He said, name her lo Ruh hama, 
which meant no mercy, no compassion. It was an expression of God's judgment against Israel for her sin. But here, for the repentant person, the one who recognizes their helpless condition before God, he says, for in you the orphan finds rakam, finds mercy. God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. Any who come to God with a genuinely repentant heart, who recognize the, the greatness of their sin and, and their need for forgiveness, who all they can do is throw themselves at the mercy of God, that is the person God will show mercy to. That is the person that He will forgive. The one who sees that he or she is helpless, that is the orphan that God will adopt. And that's the very picture in a sense, described in verses 4 through 7 that come next, is there we see a final encouragement. Final encouragement. God says in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and His beauty will be like the olive tree and His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in His shadow will again raise grain they will blossom like the vine his renown will be like the wine lebanon significant shift in tone here isn't there from chapter 13 it's gone from the the turbulent and and graphic and and really violent images given there in that chapter here to one of a serene garden full of lilies and strong trees trees from lebanon olive trees that were productive vines that were producing wine and all of those were meant to be a picture of israel in the future when god restores them when they truly do come to repentance and faith in the lord jesus christ then they will look like this beautiful picture that he paints here and what's interesting is if you compare the verses and the descriptions here in in these verses they're very similar to what solomon said to his bride in song of solomon chapter 4 I think there's a, there's a deliberate connection here. Do you remember back in chapter 2 of Hosea, how God approached and addressed Israel at that time as he considered this future restoration and he, he spoke to them in, in terms of betrothal? I think we're reminded of that again here in this picture that he describes, this warm scene. And it's referring to the people of Israel. It's describing a promise that he has made to them. A promise reiterated all through the prophets. Almost every prophet talks about this. The promise of restoring national Israel in the future. In fact, it's a promise that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 11. That God will save all Israel. And again, it's in about every book that we have studied so far. Just about every one of them end with this future promised hope. This restoration But Hosea is unique because he doesn't end right at verse 7, does he? There's two more verses where God and Hosea both have a final word. Final word. It's the last point this morning. He says in verse 8, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. 
And brothers and sisters, these last two verses are among the most critical in the entire book. Because in verse 8, that is the theological hinge upon which the whole book of Hosea turns. And verse 9 is, gives the words of Hosea and his reason for putting his messages together in print. And beloved, if we don't get these two verses, we really don't get the point of the whole book. Consider again verse 8, where God says, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It's a Hebrew idiom that he gives here, a question that expresses the idea of, why are these idols even around here? Why are they even in my sight? And it is then where God gives, in just a few words, the primary theme of Hosea's book. Something Israel just didn't get. Something Israel refused to accept or believe. And something that many today in our world don't accept or believe. For everybody's going around trying to find meaning, right? Everyone is trying to find hope, looking for peace, looking for joy, satisfaction, trying to find comfort in something, right? Or someone. Everyone has their Assyrias and their Egypts that they run to. Everyone has their Baals, their golden calves that they put their trust in, even bow down to, right? And so God says, what are all these things even doing here? Don't you understand? Don't you see? He's saying here, I am the one, the only one who can answer your cry for help. I am the only one who truly cares. He says, I am, I'm like a tree that gives shade and protection. I am the one who provides for you. All that you have has come from me. And he's saying here, it's me. It is me. That's the message of Hosea. That's the anthem of all scripture, really. For you see, this phrase, this verse isn't just meant for Israel. It's meant for the entire world. And so God's question about the idols here is he's really saying, why are you looking anywhere else when I am all you need? It doesn't make sense. Jesus echoed this over and over, didn't he? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will have eternal life. will never die, he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I am the luxuriant vine. For me comes your fruit. You remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman, right? They were around the well. This was a woman who was looking for meaning in men and significance. She had been married several times, and she was now living with a guy that wasn't her husband. And they're at this well, and she's drawn water out of the well. And Do you remember what Jesus said to her probably as they were looking at the water? He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So if we're to get anything from Hosea, it is that message. If we're to get anything from the entire Bible, God has really reduced it down for us in one verse in Hosea 
chapter 14, verse 8, the last couple of phrases. And he's saying here to the world, to, to Israel, to everyone, I am all you need. I am all you need. And Hosea then, in verse 9, him being prompted by the Holy Spirit here, but Hosea speaks after God's final declaration. Hosea gives an exhortation to carefully consider all the words that he has written. He says there, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. So here I can sort of picture Hosea. He's, I don't know, sitting at some place where he's writing these down. He's reflecting on the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind the messages that he had delivered over the years in proclaiming the message to the people of Israel. And he comes through all these 14 chapters and he gets to the end. And it's almost like he's setting his quill down. He stops writing and he looks up at us, the reader. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. I think his primary audience at that point in time was not Israel. Israel was gone. They were no more. There was a remnant strewn about in the land. I don't think his book was written primarily to them. It was over by this time. By the time it went to print, Assyria had come through the land. I think his primary audience was first the people of Judah because they were going down the same exact path as their brothers to the north. So he wrote this as a warning to them and sometimes even explicitly refers to them in these messages. But it doesn't stop there. Judah wasn't the only audience. But here we see it's also us. Everyone reading these words that... He had articulated, yes, the messages were originally delivered to the people of Israel. They were the first audience. But now we are the audience. Whoever is wise, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. So Hosea is telling you, if if you are wise, you will take heed to everything I've said. Everything I've written down. Because these words speak of the Lord, the right, the morally straight ways of our God. And reader, Hosea says, you now have a choice. Will you seek to understand what has been written and follow them? Or will you ignore and suffer the consequences? And beloved, that's that's why we're doing this series on the minor prophets. One of the reasons is because within them, we can see things about our Lord, things about God, some things that are harder to see in other places that maybe aren't written about in such a certain way. But but as we go through every part of the Bible, especially in even the minor prophets, there are things we can learn about the straight ways of God. And if you are wise, if you are the righteous, you'll want to know everything you can about God, right? So that you can know him better. And if Hosea and Amos and Jonah and Zechariah, if these books can, can give us even a little more of a picture of God, isn't that worth it? And that's why we're digging and that's why we're wrestling with some very difficult passages. Because I'm doing it because I want to know God more. And as Hosea says here, the wise person is the one who will seek to understand what Hosea has written. And that's the same thing that Paul talks about in reference to the Old Testament, right? Twice he says, God gave us the Old Testament, the Scriptures, so that we might be instructed, so that we might have hope. James 1, uh, he talks about, and James was probably the first uh, book, one of the first, if not the first, 
New Testament book written. And in it, he says, prove yourselves to be not just hearers of the word, but doers, right? And again, the word available to them primarily at that time was the Old Testament. So don't ever dismiss the Old Testament. Don't dismiss or ignore the minor prophets. And I'm not going to let you do that, at least not on Sundays. And don't dismiss the word at all, right? I mean, it's obvious, but don't don't ignore it or or give it less priority. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, right? Amen. And so as we leave the book of Hosea, let's once more remember its message. That God is all you need. Let's pray. Lord, you are all we need. And confess even as your children at times we will run for, look for horses from the Egyptians. or Lord, we will trust in things other than you. And we've seen here so clearly that just not only how wrong that is, but just, just Lord, how stupid it is to trust in things that can't ultimately help, that you are the only one who can. And Father, thank you for Hosea. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for enabling him to endure and continue to proclaim a message and then writing it down for us so that we would have it, so that we would see in wonderful ways, Lord. We've seen more of a glimpse of you and your love and compassion, Lord, how sin is a betrayal against you and Lord, your your wrath and anger over it and your patience and your mercy, your great compassion. Lord, we have seen these in such wonderful ways because of our brother Hosea and giving us these messages that you gave him. Father, I pray that you would continue to, to use your word to grow in us a hunger for more of it. We thank you for it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who died so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could be forgiven, so that we, Lord, could be justified before you because of him, not because of us. Thank you that we have this week to celebrate that. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.